Yeah, good evening. I'm sorry many of you have to come in an hour earlier than you normally do. Um, but all the same, uh, good to see you. Last week, we considered the topic of the paradox of God's grace and the paradox of God's promise. Today, we will consider the paradox of obedience. Everything to do with God seems to have a paradox about it. After Moses died, God told Joshua, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. I don't know what thoughts come to your mind. I mean, it is true that just before God said this, he promised Joshua that every bit of land that his feet touches will be given to the people and all that sort of thing. But I'm still thinking, oh gosh, this is... Ah, because that's what exactly what God told Moses, but nothing happened. You remember? You know, when Moses was minding his own business, God appeared in the burning bush and said, I want you to get my people out of Egypt and take them to the land that I have promised Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But they are still no better. I mean, they're still not in the land. They are outside. So here is Joshua, Moses' disciple, hearing this, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses. And that's, that phrase is the worst one. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. We may think it is an amazing promise. Is it really an amazing promise? If God is with Joshua, just as he has been with Moses, it is going to be another 40 years of wilderness wandering, another complete generation of people perishing and the promised land still remaining probably a pie in the sky, a dream yet to be fulfilled. Am I exaggerating? Am I way off the creek? I don't know. I'm just asking you. But that's how I thought as I read this. I've been reading through this in the context of our meditation the last couple of weeks, story of Rahab and others. I think Joshua would have screamed or should have screamed. No, 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 please don't do it to me. I know how hard it has been for Moses. I have walked with him. I have talked to him. He has opened his heart to me. It has been a miserable journey. Please don't do it to me. The problem is we focus too much on God is on my side. God is going to fight for me theme rather than just focusing on walking with God in obedience. The conquest of Canaan was a military undertaking for Joshua. God insisted that it should be a journey of obedience and that's the difference. It has to be a journey of obedience. Any battle that God sanctions is a battle within us. Initially when I was preparing this devotion, I was going to mention three battles that we fight and we need to fight and overcome them and all those three battles are actually within maybe another week i'll bring it talk about it any battle that god sanctions is a battle within the initial conquest is always the defeat of the self 
that rebels against God. That is where the battle has to be won. Joshua and his people must obey. Rahab and her family must obey. You know, if God says to Joshua, you walk six times and on the seventh day you walk seven times, they must obey. And if God says to Rahab, if you want to be saved, you must be on the wall that is falling down you and anyone, anyone else who wants to be saved. And they must obey God too. I think we looked at that last week, so I'm not going to go into it. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, we have a slightly different picture. Three times Joshua is instructed to be strong and courageous. Three times Joshua is instructed to obey all the laws of Moses. This is something we need to understand. Three times, you know, if you, you can go and uh, read it, meditate it, uh, it's Joshua 1, 69. We see three times God saying to Joshua, be strong and be courageous. And that great hymn, be strong, take courage, do not be afraid, comes from those verses. Three times he says. But three times in the same verses, God also says to Joshua, obey all the laws of Moses. So these two things go hand in hand. To be strong and be courageous goes hand in hand with obeying all the laws of Moses. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So we ask the question, where can I go? The answer, wherever obedience takes you. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So immediately we think, oh, that's fantastic. The question is, where can I go? And the answer is, wherever obedience to God's command take you or lead you. If we do not obey God, then we cannot expect God's blessings. I said we cannot expect God's blessings. But God may still choose to bless us in His mercy and wisdom, even if we do not obey. But that is God's choice. That is something God does out of His mercy and grace. You know, God is not exactly a cause and effect God. Even if we don't obey, God might still bless us. But our response should be obedience. Let us take another look at what is obedience. True obedience is more than fulfilling God's commands. True obedience is remaining in the presence of God. And this is what the commander of the Lord's army reminded Moses. The place where you are standing is holy. Because you have received God's promise. This is holy ground. If I am standing on holy ground, then my attitude and actions must reflect the character of the Holy One. I hope it makes sense. If I am standing on holy ground, then the attitude, my attitude, must reflect my character. My, my actions must reflect the character of the Holy One. So first, true obedience is remaining in the presence of God. Second, true obedience is not being preoccupied with the end result, but being focused on the one who is journeying with us. So keep our eyes in our obedience on what I am going to get at the end of the obedience. That is not primary focus. It is, are my eyes focused 
on the one who is traveling with me, the one who is journeying with me. The third factor that we need to know about obedience is true obedience is trusting in God's faithfulness, not only when we do what is right, but also when we do wrong. Knowing that no matter what, God is with me is the secret of obedience. No matter what, no matter where I go, God is with me. So not only when things go right, but even when I fail God, knowing that God is with me is important. Fourth, true obedience is practicing integrity. True obedience is being blatantly honest. What is integrity? Integrity is aiming to live in obedience. Integrity is acknowledging the wrong we do. In other words, it is coming clean rather than hiding. Abandoning the temptations to cover up. I have often wondered what it would have been like if Adam and Eve did not cover up. Were they punished for the wrong they did or were they punished for not acknowledging the wrong they did? I am not sure, but I'm only wondering. You are allowed to wonder with me. Maybe you will have better wondering than I have. As we come to the end of the Jericho story, we read the following. This is Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. So one episode is kind of coming to an end. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. In another version, Geneva Bible, I like it. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was noised throughout the country. This is Geneva Bible. I suppose you don't see anything in it, do you? Or am I the only weird one here? We started this particular episode. We saw, in fact, Joshua chapter 1, where God appeared to him and told him to be faithful and don't be afraid, etc., etc., etc. So the Jericho episode is finished. The walls have fallen down. Uh, Rahab is saved. And the scripture says she's up to this day, she is still living among us. So it is pretty in the same generation kind of thing. The writer is talking about the same generation. And he's saying, um, so the Lord was with Joshua. And his fame was noised throughout the land. Now I would invite you to read the next verse, which is the next chapter. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully. I am not for a moment suggesting that Joshua orchestrated his own fame or that the Israelites' unfaithfulness had anything to do with Joshua. But it is sad and almost a coincidence that at the end of the story, it was Joshua's fame that is orchestrated. What I am saying is personal glory and triumphalism must be viewed with great suspicion even if it is thrusted on you. Shall I read that again? What I am saying is personal glory and triumphalism must be viewed with great suspicion, even if it is thrusted on you. We started the story last week with Rahab's confession of the fame and fear, not of Joshua. Rahab confessed the fame and fear of God. I know, she said, that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. It's all Lord, Lord, Lord. No mention of Moses, no mention of Joshua. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is Joshua chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. 
you're welcome to go back and read it. We looked at it last week. This is how the story starts with the confession of a Canaanite woman, a woman not of faith, and that too, a woman with dubious character. It's all about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But the episode ends with Joshua's fame being noised throughout the country. We saw the captain of the Lord's army demanding that Joshua must not assume or take for granted that God was with him and his people alone. Because Joshua asked him, are you with us or are you against us? He said, neither. I can be with you and I can also be with your enemies. And I don't have to be with either of you. We say how he was reminded that it was God's battle and Joshua must recognize God's holiness in everything. But sadly, this episode of the conquest of Jericho concludes with Joshua's fame. The next episode starts with the unfaithfulness of the nation. Be weary when people noise your fame and sing your praise, even if you didn't look for it, ask for it, or even if you didn't like it, still be weary. They did it to Joshua and they did it to David. You remember what happened to David, a young man, full of right intentions. You know, he faced the giant and said, you come to me with a spear and a javelin and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. But as soon as that little episode, the battle was finished, women of Israel came out and sang, Saul has slain a thousand and David tens of thousands. There was no mention of God. Before the battle, it was all about God. After the battle, it was all about David. Before the conquest of Jericho, the Canaanite woman, the captain of the Lord's army, even Joshua himself, confessed to the Lord appearing him to him and saying, take courage, be of good courage, and obey the Lord. They did it to Joshua and they did it to David. No matter how watchful you are, it can eventually filter down and percolate into our thinking. We may not like it, but it can somehow percolate, slowly drip down into our thinking. Jesus warned his disciples. Well, uh, the older translation says, Oh, unto you. But I like this modern translation that says, What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? That is Luke 6.26. Proverbs instructs us. It's, I like it. It's beautiful imagery. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold. But a person is tested by being praised. The paradox of obedience. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold. But a person is tested by being praised. Proverbs 27, 21. What is the end result of obedience? Is it God's glory or my fame. I'm not even for a moment suggesting that people look for our own fame, but we don't have to look for it. It somehow percolates, percolates down or by way of osmosis comes up. Either way, it does get into the system. It infiltrates into the system and we begin to believe it to be true. What is important for us is to take careful note how quickly and easily the transition happened to Joshua without the slightest glitch in the narrative. 
in a nothing goes wrong in the story. Nothing goes wrong, yet everything becomes wrong. As we come to chapter 7 verse 1, the Israelites acted unfaithfully. That's the next verse. Nothing goes wrong, yet everything is wrong. This is the delicacy and subtlety of the fall from grace. This is the paradox of obedience. I'm not for a moment saying Joshua went after fame, but I'm just saying that's what happened. The paradox of obedience, Abraham's story. Abraham is frequently associated with the supreme act of sacrifice, the sacrifice of his one and only son, Isaac. Yet the Bible clearly tells us that Abraham did not sacrifice Isaac. It is true that Abraham was prepared to sacrifice him, but God prevented him from doing that. How was Abraham's preparedness to sacrifice Isaac an act of great faith? This is something we need to ask, and I hope you are listening very carefully because I'm going to say a few things that you may not have heard and that is going to probably surprise you. In order to answer this question, and that question is, how was Abraham's preparedness to sacrifice Isaac an act of great faith? In order to answer this question properly, we must understand and carefully take note of two divergent and mutually exclusive aspects of this story. The first deals with why I believe it need not be an act of great faith. That is Abraham's preparedness to sacrifice Isaac. I, Sonny Philip, believe that it need not be an act of great faith. Second points out the opposite of the first. And that is why I believe what God asked Abraham to do was indicative of great faith. We are talking about paradoxes. So we've got to have two seemingly incompatible things. So what I'm saying is on one hand, what Abraham was asked to do was not necessarily an act of great faith. But I'm also saying it could be an act of great faith. We must hold these two paradoxes in balance. Otherwise, we may have trouble understanding what Abraham actually did. Why am I saying what I said first? That why it need not have been an act of great faith. First of all, sacrificing children was a common practice during the time of Abraham and even much later. Though it may look strange to our modern spirituality that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son, what we need to understand here is that that was not strange during the time of Abraham. In fact, other gods demanded sacrifice of children. People were used to sacrificing children to please their God. What Yahweh asked Abraham to do, sacrifice Isaac, was consistent with what other gods expected their devotees to do. There was nothing unusual or strange about this requirement. So this cannot be viewed as a great act of faith. Every Tom, Dick and Sonny were sacrificing their children. So when God asked Abraham to do it, no big deal. He's one of a thousand, probably one of 10,000, one of a million who would have sacrificed their children. Furthermore, Isaac was not the only son Abraham had. He had another son, Ishmael, born to him by his Egyptian wife. Sorry, concubine, if you take offense at that, Hagar. 
Due to domestic envy and disharmony, Abraham sent away Ishmael knowing that most likely he and his mother would perish in the wilderness. I'm not for a moment suggesting that Abraham happily sent away his son. It might have hurt him. But the truth is that he did chase him away at the insistence of his wife Sarah and with the endorsement of God. Abandoned to the vagaries of nature, the mother and the son nearly perished in the wilderness. So if he can allow or send away one son to die, why not sacrifice another son? If you could allow one son to die at the insistence of your wife, why not allow another son to die at the insistence of God? I don't think it was a big deal. Abraham had already sacrificed one son and there is no evidence that he knew that this boy was alive at all. But God intervened and rescued Ishmael. Just the same way God intervened and rescued Isaac. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he was already exposed to the idea of child sacrifice, both in the community around him and in his own personal life. He had already sacrificed one of his sons at the insistence of one of his wives. While it is not easy to sacrifice one's own child at any time in any community, when what God asked Abraham to do is put within the context, we may say that it was not a unique act of faith. When the COVID-19 situation is finished, and when we are allowed to meet face to face, you are allowed to stone me. But at the moment I'm safe. You can't do anything because I'm so far away. I'm untouchable. To counterbalance what I have just said, we need to make three significant observations. First, sacrificing children was contrary to the character of the God of Abraham. Now, I bring you back again to the character of God. That is what determines my obedience. Don't give too much importance to Abraham sacrificed his son. I think Abraham was respecting and obeying God. It is not the sacrifice, it is the obedience that we should focus on. That's what I'm trying to say. So, first, sacrificing children was contrary to the character of the God of Abraham. It may have been within the character of every other God, but not the God of Abraham, the one who received much, much later as Yahweh to Moses. Second, it was contrary to the promise of God to Abraham. Because in Genesis chapter 21 verse 12 we read, God promising Abraham, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. So that's a specific promise. Third, it was contrary to the later commandments of God and the teachings of the prophets. As you read in Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and so on. Sacrificing children was strictly forbidden. So let us focus on the character of God. So what was Abraham's faith? First of all, Abraham did not see faith as an abstract idea for logical and intellectual assent alone. In fact, I'm not sure how much he was concerned about faith. It seems that he was interested in his faithfulness to God. He was prepared to do it because God asked. And that's the point. Once you are assured of God's faithfulness to you, then what really matters is your faithfulness as a response to God's faithfulness. We looked at this before. I have said that we need to move from faith to faithfulness. When questioned about his authority, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but speak just 
what the Father has taught me. Authority, the reference, is God. Second, Abraham was beginning to understand that the God who revealed himself is a God of paradoxes. And that's what we are all about. The God who revealed himself is a God of paradoxes. He and his wife were rebuked for not trusting when God promised him a son. Now, the same God is asking him to sacrifice that son. Once when God promised that he will have a son, they laughed. What? At our age. And they were rebuked. Now the same God is asking him to sacrifice his son. But the paradox of God's promise did not detract Abraham from walking faithfully with God. This is the balance. We must walk not knowing necessarily. We don't need to know everything. We see a similar response elsewhere in the New Testament. Peter the Apostle said, you remember how Jesus appeared at the lake and said, have you caught anything? And uh, he said, no, nothing. He said, well, in that case, cast the net to the right side or left side or something. And Peter said, we have toiled the whole night, but got nothing. But at your word, we will try again. This is fascinating. We have toiled all night. It is not due to lack of trying. It is not because we are lazy. It is not because we have fallen asleep. It is not because we don't know the nature of the sea or where the fishes are that we did not catch any. We have toiled all night. But at your word, we will try again. What Peter was really saying is, I will do it not because what you just said makes sense to me. You are not a fisherman. You have never caught a fish. I am a fisherman and I haven't caught it. What you have just said does not make sense. But because you make sense, I will obey you. This is a paradox of God's way. What you have just said does not make sense. Because we have toiled all night and caught no fish. But you make sense. So in other words, our faith is in the person of God. The character of God. You make sense. What we have here is a perfect merging of faithfulness to God and the faithfulness of God. Faith is planted, nurtured and harvested in the context of this paradox. Shall I read that again? Faith is planted, nurtured and harvested in the context of this paradox. What you have just said does not make sense. But because you make sense, I will obey you. What you have said doesn't make sense to me, but you make sense. Since faith is not an abstract concept, we see faith, understand faith, and live faith in the context of our living relationship with God. This is not a cause and effect dynamic where my faith in God induces the faithfulness of God. On the contrary, it is the faithfulness of God, which induces faith in the individual. Shall I read that again? I didn't hear it quite well, so I'm going to read it for myself. This is not a cause and effect dynamic where my faith in God induces the faithfulness of God. No, my faith in God does not induce the faithfulness of God. In other words, because I'm, I have faith, God does not become faithful. It's the other way around. On the contrary, it is the faithfulness of God which induces faith in me. If God is not faithful, all my faith is meaningless. 
The story of the three young Jews we have considered once before, who challenged the decree of the great king Nebuchadnezzar, takes this coming together of faith and faithfulness to another level. With their backs to the fiery furnace and their faces to the powerful king, they said, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. This is a statement of faith. A great statement of faith. They put their lives on the line for their faith in God. But they did not just stop with that. Then they continued, Even if he does not deliver us, they said, we will not bow down to your statue. And that's faithfulness. So our faith finds its expression in our faithfulness. But that is always a response to God's faithfulness. If our God is not faithful, all our faithfulness is worthless. Believing that God is able to deliver is faith. And that is based on what they believed God was able to do. But whether God chooses to do that in this situation is different. It is not a matter of my faith, but a matter of God's wisdom. We must realize that the same God who opened the prison doors for Peter and John also allowed John the Baptist to perish in another jail. We must also realize that the God who opened the prison doors for Peter let him be crucified by the Romans. Peter was crucified just like his master. John the Baptist was murdered not because God did not have the power to open prison doors, but in his wisdom he did not choose to do it. So faith by itself has very little meaning unless it is supported by faithfulness. And that faithfulness must be embedded in the character of God. Third, for Abraham, God was bigger than his promise. Third, for Abraham, God was bigger than his promise. Instead of keeping his eyes fixed on the gift of God, i.e. Isaac, he looked at the giver of the gift, the one who gave him Isaac. He believed that God can and will keep his promise with or without Isaac. If we put it in a different way, we can say that he was in love with the giver of the gift than the gift itself. He was in love with the giver of the gift than the gift itself. Isaac was God's before Abraham received him. And Isaac was God's after Abraham received him from God. And Isaac must always belong to God. This is the essence of faith life. Does that make sense? Isaac was God's before Abraham got him. And I think if we can hold on to our children in that manner, we will have a completely different attitude to our children. Our children are God's before God gives them to us. And they are God's even after we receive them from God. And they will, Isaac must always belong to God. This is the essence of faith life. Fourth, Abraham was prepared to obey God at the risk of not seeing God's promise fulfilled in his life. Now, because the promise of God to Abraham was wrapped up in it, in Isaac. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, 
it is very possible that the promise of God might be spoiled or may not come true. Abraham was prepared to obey God at the risk of not seeing God's promise fulfilled in his life. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is walking with God even in and with our doubts. Faith is wondering how something is going to happen, but living as if it is going to happen because we trust in the faithfulness of God. Faith is wondering how something is going to happen, but living as if it is going to happen because we trust in the faithfulness of God. Abraham was asked to obey God, not sacrifice Isaac. We should not focus on the act. We must focus on the meaning of the act. The command, yes, it was to sacrifice Isaac. So when God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, Abraham must obey. But when God asks Abraham not to sacrifice his son, he must obey. So what is important? Sacrifice or obedience? This is the paradox. We must sacrifice only if that is part of our obedience. And we must not sacrifice anything in the name of God if it is not a part of our obedience to God. In other words, we should not put a premium on sacrifice. We should put a premium on obedience. Unfortunately, it is human to focus on sacrifice because that is what we do and it gives glory to us. Look at all the people we praise, the people who sacrifice. But how about putting a premium on obedience? It must have been a common story in Israel that everyone talked about it to the point that when Samuel confronts the first king Saul, he as if it was a common saying he recites to Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. Where did that come from? It came from this story of Abraham. You see, Samuel had no trouble. He almost recites as if it was an everyday proverb or in usage. He says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And that is the point. So let us not think too much of Abraham's sacrifice. Let us focus on Abraham's obedience. And then Christian life becomes completely different in our understanding. And if we can say with Peter, what you have said does not make sense, but you make sense. Therefore, at your word, I will. Elsewhere, we see a similar confession from Peter. And it's very important to understand, he may have been impetuous, he may have been whatever and whatnot. He may have been the best leader in the world, but why did Jesus choose him to be the leader? because he understood the heart of God. He understood the meaning of Christ. Elsewhere, when Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he cannot be his disciple. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 8, I think, or 7, many disciples left him. Many of his followers left him. The 12 were left behind. And Jesus asked him, do you also want to go away? Profound. Do you also want to go away? And Peter becomes a voice for the twelve and says, Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And the next bit is profound. And this is why I'm not an apologist. And I will never argue 
the case of for the gospel or God to a non-Christian. Peter said, where can we go for you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know. It is not we know and have believed. He did not say we have proof, therefore we believe. He said we have believed and that is proof. We have believed and our experience tells us, our experience with you tells us, our understanding of you tells us that you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know. Never change that order. If we change that order, we will be in big trouble because when we are putting our reason before God's character, we trust God's character and this order must be kept safe. So we don't argue a case for the gospel. We live it and demonstrate it and show it. We have believed and have come to know. What a comforting thought. I don't need to know, but I can still believe. And that is the truth of the gospel. Well, here ended the lesson. Thank you for being patient. Next week, we may probably look at the battle within, the battles that we wage. And I want to go back to good old Joshua and the conquest and have a look at some of those battles. I think there's quite a lot to be learned. But I was fascinated as I was studying this passage, how easy it is for adulation and praise, even if I don't want it, for it to filter and percolate into my system. And before I know, I want it. I ask for it. I also want to look, if possible, next week, one of the big mistakes that Joshua makes. Chapter 7, verse 1, we read, But Israelites acted unfaithfully. Did you hear that? But Israelites acted faithfully. What did Joshua do? Think about it. If you have an answer, I would love to hear it. Probably next week or the week after. God said, Israelites acted unfaithfully. In fact, later on, he says, Israel has sinned. What did Joshua do? Ah, that's what happens when we take our eyes off the Lord. Well, God bless you.